Now, if you would, please turn to Luke chapter 4 again. Luke chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 38. I've titled this message, The Gospel is Preached with Hands. Sometimes that's a title that's better left unannounced ahead of time. You know, there'd almost be a certain segment of people that certainly find a reason to skip church rather than uh, listen to a message about using our hands. There's a tendency in conservative evangelicalism in in our neck of the woods to just kind of dismiss the social responsibility of the gospel. It's an overreaction to a gospel that's gone uh, liberal in many parts of America. Uh, Some even uh, reduced the gospel to just a message of doing good stuff. They kind of leave out sin and leave out Jesus, and they have a liberal gospel of only good works. Uh, others will have adopted or embraced the position that it's just a message, that it's just about words, about uh, the truth of God's word to the expense of the goodness of God. And uh, at least that's a portion of why our message, the Christian gospel, falls sometimes on dead ears. As our neighbors respond to Christians by saying, you know, I hear what you are preaching. I am not seeing what you're preaching. I'm only hearing. And today we'll uncover that a gospel of words alone is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's certainly not the gospel presented in the Bible. One of the more substantial resources and works that I uh, regularly cite in my studies on these gospels is a book, a work written by the now late J. Dwight Pentecost. He was a distinguished uh, professor of exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years. Brilliant, extremely humble man. Uh, Dr. Pentecost was best known on campus for a course that he taught that was called The Life of Christ. And that class was a harmony of our Lord's life through the four Gospels as you put them together. Dr. Pentecost was a highly respected author of many books. The book I'm referring to today is written a written version, really, of the class that he gave about the life of Christ, also of his years of personal experience and observation in the Word of God concerning the life of Christ. And I expect he took great care as he titled it simply, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ. Christ's life was not just one of preaching. He did not deliver only words on how to honor God and care for one another. Jesus lived out those very words that he spoke. This is what made him very different from all the other religious leaders of their day who were all talk. It's a reason that the Pharisees hated Jesus. And it's the very content of Jesus' life, what he did and how he lived, that most irritated those who were hypocrites. Jesus was not all talk. His life was both talk and walk together. His words were exemplified through his works. And without the accompanying works, Jesus would have gone down in history, I would suggest, as just another empty talker. 
if he had not also had the works. Void of love, void of compassion. Actually, he would have been exposed a fraud had he not followed up with the works. Our Lord's brother James warned Christians of falling into such a deception when he declared faith without works is dead. Dead. That's James 2.17. And much of James' New Testament epistle, as you read it, it provides the church teaching about social responsibility, about how to love one another, especially those who are in need, the orphan and the widow. The reason that I read to you earlier from Job is to, to emphasize how works have always been very crucial part of the Christian faith, the biblical faith, from the very beginning, throughout the whole redemptive history of God's people. The book of Job was very, li- very likely written as the first book of the Bible. Very likely. Uh, the Pentateuch, which Moses uh, likely penned, as best we can tell, around 1400 B.C., was early, but the events of Job's life clearly predate the Exodus clearly predate Mount Sinai. In the book of Job, Job is portrayed as a priest for his family who intercedes on their behalf through, uh, through offering sacrifices of blood for his sons and daughters. As a righteous man, Job suffers more than any other man during his time on earth. He was falsely accused, and then Satan takes great pleasure in his suffering. In Job 1, verse 8, God told Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Remind you of anyone? Like Melchizedek, Boaz, King David, and others in the Old Testament, Job was very much a picture of Christ. He wasn't Christ. He wasn't God in the flesh, but he was very much a picture of Jesus displayed in the Old Testament. It's why Jesus was able to rebuke the Pharisees. They didn't understand the Old Testament, but he said, You search the scriptures, it is these that testify about me. There are shadows of Christ woven throughout the Old Testament. Job was not the Christ, as I said, but he led a life that reflected God and Christ, so should ours. And like Jesus, Job's righteousness was not only seen in what he preached through his words, it was seen in his deeds. Job 31, verse 16, If I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, Job then says, let my arm be broken off at the elbow. Throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, those who are God's righteous, those who belong to him, preach not only with their mouth, but they also preach with their hands. According to Luke chapter 4, verse 43, in our passage today, Jesus has just finished preaching the kingdom of God. He's, he's done this in the synagogue in Capernaum. He's preached with his lips. The, the kingdom of God, 
uh, that is proclaimed, it's being proclaimed here, it doesn't currently refer to a place. It eventually will. But when Jesus refers to God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about a sphere of influence. John MacArthur says in his study Bible notes that the kingdom of God refers to, quote, the sphere of God's dominion over those who belong to him, unquote. That's the kingdom of God, the sphere of God's dominion over those who belong to him. And when we place our faith in Christ, Colossians 1.13 tells us that at that moment, God rescues us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Well, you think back to when you trusted Christ. Could have been a few years ago. Uh, Did your physical location change? No, not at all. But your citizenship was transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Well, uh, Matthew also assures us that during the time of Christ, as he was traveling through Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, we have to ask the question then, what would that kingdom of God look like? What would it look like? What was Christ preaching at this time? And here in Capernaum, we don't know exactly. We don't know exactly what he is teaching. We have no transcripts, and Scripture doesn't record it for us. But I think we can get a pretty good idea of what Jesus was preaching here as he was preaching the kingdom and what that looked like by observing one full sermon that is contained in Scripture between Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7 that is titled, The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave. And the Sermon on the Mount offers the listener at least a partial picture of what life was for the citizen in the kingdom of God. So I believe it is reasonable to imagine that in that synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus was teaching the people in a manner somewhat consistent with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. 
Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it keeps light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That they will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount. And I stand corrected. I was mistaken. Jesus actually did speak in the King James English, I see. Um, But in his sermon, Jesus provided, among many other things, lesson on humility, lesson on giving to the poor. He offered guidelines on how to love thy neighbor as thyself, while also saying in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says, essentially, concentrate on being a good citizen of the kingdom. God will somehow provide for your needs. How? Jesus doesn't exactly say. But assuming Jesus' content in the Sermon on the Mount and the topic of the kingdom of God resembles that in Luke chapter 4 as he preached the kingdom, at least ballpark similar to what we just saw to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In verse 38, we then see, after preaching in this way, then Jesus got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, Jesus would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea, Judea, excuse me. Because Jesus' previous preaching we saw in the last passage in Nazareth, he told them, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And looking at that, Obviously, we know that Nazareth didn't receive Jesus. But the promise he gave them wasn't empty words. It wasn't empty speak. Last week I made note of how Luke 3 uh, provides evidences 
uh, provides three evidences to the reader that Jesus is truly the Messiah. Last week we saw in this synagogue a man was released from a demonic spirit which had held him captive. Jesus set the captives free in Nazareth. That was one of the evidences. We saw Jesus had power then over the spiritual realm. In Nazareth, Jesus proclaimed uh, release of the captives. In our passage today, Luke records how Jesus also has power over that physical realm. Not just the spiritual, but the physical. And he's going to fulfill the promise from Isaiah where he said he's going to give recovery to, of sight to the blind. So Jesus is going to heal, in verse 40, all types of diseases. Jesus fulfills the word that he preaches to the people. Now you tell me, if Jesus had just preached the kingdom of God with his lips, only with his words, with his mouth, but had not followed those words through actions, had not followed up his preaching... Would anyone be taking him seriously today? Would people be talking about Jesus today if he had not lived what he preached? Probably not. No, he would have gone down in history as just another empty talker who looked a lot like the Pharisees. All talk with no works. What set Jesus apart is that his words were followed by works. That's what made him different. History and humanity demonstrate that you can't just talk, just talk and be taken very seriously by the world. They know better than that. It's probably, if not the number one reason close to the top, that our Lord's brother James told the church, I will show you my faith by my works. And then he asks, What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? That type of faith, that empty type of faith, James says, is dead. It's dead. It's worse than dead, actually. It's demonic. It's demonic. Words without actions are demonic if they only possess knowledge about Christ. Because James also said, even the demons believe. Demonic faith, demonic doctrine is what we see in Luke 4 verse 41. Notice demons also have at least some sound doctrine about Jesus. Verse 41 says, the demons also were coming out of many, shouting, you are the Son of God. But rebuking them, Jesus would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Don't think for a second, folks. The people who verbally profess that Jesus is the Christ can't at the same time remain unregenerate. These are declarations that you are hearing from a demon. You might visit churches declaring 
He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. There is the Christ. But if their words are not substantiated through their works, they're dead. Faith without works is dead. And folks, there, there is an insidious disease, really, of large swaths of evangelicalism. Not just our corner of theology, other corners as well, it suffers uh, as conservative Reformed Christians. Uh, we can attend conferences with all the big names all day long, and we can listen to Al Mohler preach, and, and we can be, uh, learn doctrine from John MacArthur and Alistair Begg, and all the heavy hitters, whoever it is, take your pick. And we can hear doctrines about Jesus and holler amen and and high five and all the way on the ride home from the conference. We can just be congratulating ourselves on how great our doctrine is. But if it isn't accompanied by the works of our hands, we are in no safer spiritual state than a demon. Admittedly, you cannot have a relationship with the Savior without sound doctrine. You can't. But you can recite sound doctrine without a relationship with the Savior. The demon just did. It happens many times in Scripture. Demons prove it. And the Bible never advises us to give confidence of salvation according to what people know. It's according to what people show. This is why James says, show me. Show me. 500 years ago, Martin Luther struggled with this as a young monk with the book of James. He didn't quite understand how James can have such an emphasis on showing him things. Because Martin Luther had been affected by all those years of trying to prove something. He didn't quite get that balance in the picture where James is speaking to Christians. In the passage, he's speaking to those who already are to know Christ. It's not that salvation comes through these acts. We know that for a fact because James, nowhere in the book of James does it contain the gospel. He's not teaching them how to be saved. He's asking them to live out their faith. Jesus realized that people could not validate his relationship with the Father based merely on what he preached with his mouth. They couldn't validate that. It's why after his message was complete, he set out to preach to the people with his hands. It was his words combined with his works that verified who he was. The same is true with us, folks. Jesus realized they couldn't see His words. So Jesus got busy. In verse 38 it says that he got up and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So take note here, previous to our passage that we look at next week, that Jesus is already in a relationship with Simon Peter. They already know one another. Close to a year has passed since Jesus was baptized since he was tempted by by Satan in the wilderness. And uh, we'll see next week that the disciples to this point have not left their occupations. They've been with him for seasons. They've followed Jesus on a partial itinerant basis. They've probably attended some conferences. 
They've even traveled through Samaria with him by this time, and they've seen his power to heal. They've seen what he can do. So staying in Simon's home, Jesus is asked to help Peter's mother-in-law. She had a very high fever. Here we see, as the Apostle Paul later emphasizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, that Peter continued to be married. He definitely was married. Uh, the Greek here implies that his mother-in-law had a very high fever. Very high, to the point the passage suggests she's suffering. And in verse 39, standing over her, Jesus rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. Here we see the display of Christ's power over the physical, even the biological realm. He has power. He didn't use antibiotics. He didn't refer her to a doctor. He spoke. Just as a demon-possessed man, her healing was immediate, it was complete. Simon's mother-in-law got up and it says that she immediately began to serve them. So she got, she got well right now, right? Folks, never trust a faith healer who wants you to go home, take two Tylenol, and then contact him in a week. Unlike what we see on TV, miraculous healing is always complete and immediate. There are certainly occurrences, like as with the blind man, where Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, so there might be a couple minutes before he comes back. That is by Christ's design. But miraculous healing, at least as a sign, as Jesus had a sign, as the apostles had a sign, it doesn't take a period of time. A miracle is a miracle. Again, it's not that God isn't in work with our healing in the hospital. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm talking about as a sign to people. As a miraculous sign in the Bible, it is immediate. There's no question God still heals people today, but not through a televangelist as you put your hand on the TV. whole lot of goofy stuff going on out there. Um, this is the reason, actually, the immediacy of the healing that John 4.46 takes special note of the royal official. We talked about him a couple weeks ago where he went to Jesus and said, my son is dying. Jesus said, go, your son lives. And, and as uh, the official goes to, to meet his son, he's actually met by his servants, right? And he said, your son lives. He's all right. And what does, Jesus, uh, what does he ask? He goes, oh, what time? Was he healed? And they noted at the exact time that Jesus spoke. That's what makes it a miracle. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's not done. Verse 40 says, While the sun was setting, that means that the Sabbath was ending so people could move about. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, laying his hands on each of them, he was healing them. Demons were also coming out of many. The Gospel of Mark actually said that after the sun had set, that the, the whole city had gathered at their door. That's in Mark one thirty three. So it's late. It's very dark out. Jesus told them, you know, I'm tired. Come back tomorrow. No. No. 
Or Jesus walked out and, and pronounced a blessing on over everyone. And they're all immediately healed. Because it was late. No. Could Jesus have done that as a son of God? He could have done that. But that's not what we see. How did he do it? Here's a good model that he gave us. It says, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases. The whole city came to the door, remember? They brought them to him and laying his hands on each one of them. He was healing them. The text is very deliberate to show that Jesus laid his hands on every single person that was sick. At least a moment of compassion to show them that he cared enough for their condition. Do you think as Jesus preached those Beatitudes that we looked, looked at earlier on the short video saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You think if Jesus preached that and if he never showed any mercy, if he never showed any comfort, that we'd still be talking about him today. Unlikely. Unlikely. If he had not also preached his sermons with his hands. Jesus offered the world a a testimony both through his words and his works, saying, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist. And Jesus says, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me. John 5.36 The very works testify about who he is. In one confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus insisted they didn't have a relationship because they weren't of God's chosen sheep. They weren't of the sheepfold. Still, he told them this. Listen to this. John 10, verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Believe the works, so that you may know and understand God. Does Jesus suggest that works are Important? Essential. Essential. The works of our hands testify that we are of the Father. Does Jesus imply our works might contribute to people coming to the knowledge and understanding of God? The understanding of salvation? That's implied. He, what he says implies that some might even come to faith because of what they've seen. Because it authenticates the words. And after all the preaching uh, that Philip had heard from Jesus, Philip the disciple, he still had not believed. And Jesus asked him in John 14.10, get this, 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, he tells Philip. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus invites Philip to not only believe because of the words, but also because of the works. They're backed up by works. And to his disciples, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do. See, a lot of people get nervous like Martin Luther. Man, all these works. How do I work this in? Because we tend to dismiss a lot of it. We like doctrine, but we don't often like the actions that are uh, commanded by doctrine and, and exposed as our problem. Conservative evangelicalism, folks, has almost completely severed the word of Jesus from the works of Jesus. The word of God from the works of God. And we've parsed them. And we've embraced one more than the other. And we preach our lungs out, folks. Our doctrine's impeccable. We cross every T, we dot every I. But so often we fail to reach out our hands and touch people. Then we marvel. Why doesn't anybody believe? I think it's clear. Maybe we should try preaching a little more with these. With our hands. It's very detrimental. Very detrimental to receive, to memorize, to recite facts about Jesus. Genuine, legitimate facts about Jesus gathered from the Word of God and have no regenerated heart desire to go out and love people. That is the most dangerous state we could get in. The church cannot preach the verbal words of Scripture and demand a right to be heard unless we follow Jesus and his works. Thoughts to wonder why people don't believe that the Spirit of Christ is living in our hearts today? Maybe some cases he's not. And the challenge for us, perhaps the greatest test of our faith, our individual faith, for, for we can claim to know all kinds of doctrines. We can, we can assert that unless the Holy Spirit is working to regenerate the heart, unless the Holy Spirit is convicting, unless the Holy Spirit is doing His sovereign work in the heart, We know that neither our words nor our works will penetrate anyone to win them to Jesus apart from God. We know that. That is true. That's good doctrine. God is sovereign and scripture says that he must draw them. The Father must draw them. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We'll memorize that. That's good to memorize. And we could also correctly assert that if God so wills, People can be saved simply at the verbal proclamation of the gospel. 
that it's not salvifically essential that our preaching be followed up by works in order for someone to be saved. That is also true. The Word of God is the only essential prerequisite for the Holy Spirit to reach someone's convicted heart and to regenerate them. The Ethiopian eunuch, excuse me, in Acts 8.27 might be a good example of that. How Philip was brought on the scene, remember? He didn't have any background with Philip. Philip just helped explain the Word of God to him. And the eunuch believed, wanted to be baptized. So there are examples of that. But we as Christians cannot say that empty, void preaching was the approach of Christ. Can't do it. And we cannot say that God in His sovereignty doesn't at times use our compassion to draw others to Him. Scripture suggests otherwise. And probably most serious of all, we cannot say proclamation through our mouth alone without compassionate works with our hands indicates that we are disciples of Christ. You must have both. There are lots of people out there doing that. Words without works. Blasting doctrine. Displaying no love. Clinical in their exposition. Only successful in driving people further from Jesus. A noisy gong, a clanging cymbal to a lost and dying world, folks. Remember, even a demon can make a proper assertion about Christ. A proper doctrinal assertion. But if there is no desire to love the lost and serve our God through preaching with our hands, we who claim to belong to Jesus, prove him to be a liar because faith without works is dead. Theologically, you know, we love that word, I love that word. Theologically, you must preach your hands regardless whether you believe that draws people to Christ or not. Theologically, you have to. Whether or not you believe that you're serving others rather than the word, whether you believe that that helping people out and being an encouragement to them and touching them, whether you believe that God actually even uses that to complement his word. I do believe God uses that. I think it's very clear in his word. Regardless of whether you agree with that theologically, according to James, you still have to do it. You don't have any way out. No way out to just proclaim things theologically and not follow it with works. That's what Christians are to do. Christians are to be seen as the most compassionate people on the planet. It's a testimony of who we are and who we belong to. It honors God. Folks, we need to be close to people. We need to show love to them as Jesus showed love what can we do as a church today? What can we do as a church body? We, we hear this all the time. Uh, when a crisis comes up, the first question that is asked is, what can the church do about it? Oh, we can do a lot of things. We can work together. We can go to Naples. We can do those types of service projects. The church can do things. We can help. But we can't always wait for something officially scheduled on a calendar. Calendar. 
before we show the compassion of God to our neighbors. We can't schedule every act of compassion. We have to touch people, folks, with our own lives. We have to touch our neighbors with love. More often, we need to ask, what can I do about it? What can I do where they can see Christ in me? How can my testimony draw others to the truth about Jesus Christ? What do people see in my behavior? What is it about me and my hands that resembles Jesus in Luke 4 that would make them want to come to church and worship the Jesus that I profess? What is it about us? So many times we we say, well, people don't want to hear our preaching. People don't want to accept our doctrine, and that is true. But sometimes they just don't want to accept us. As Dr. Pentecost taught, the life of Christ was not, not merely displayed through a whole bunch of words. The life of a disciple is not one of only preaching. As Dr. Pentecost said, our commission in life is compassion, compassion to be expressed through the words and the works of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.